We are concerned about this phenomenon of capture of the state where powerful corporates and firms did not just try to navigate or get around the existing rules of the game, but instead they shaped the rules of the game. Hello and welcome to Kickback, the anti-corruption podcast. This is the first in a series of episodes which will be hosted by the Centre for the Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex. In this episode, we have Danny Kaufman in conversation with Liz David Barrett on the topic of state capture. They discuss how and why the original concept of state capture was developed, taking in Danny's experience working for the World Bank in countries in the former Soviet Union in the 1990s. Danny and Liz debate how the concept has evolved since then, covering cases from the Balkans to South Africa and asking whether state capture is a helpful lens for understanding corruption challenges evident in many countries today, including mature democracies like the UK and US. They finally discuss Danny's experience in developing data and indices related to corruption and explore whether state capture is a phenomenon we might be able to measure. We hope you enjoy the discussion and thank you for listening. My name is Liz David Barrett and I'm a professor at the University of Sussex, currently on leave running a programme at the International Anti-Corruption Academy on Measuring Corruption. And I'm really delighted to be joined today by Danny Kaufman. He's going to be talking to us about state capture, something that he's been working on for many years. Danny's currently a senior fellow at two think tanks, Results for Development and the Brookings Institution. Uh, And he's also a professor in the Faculty of Economics at the University of Philippines. He's also president emeritus of the Natural Resource Governance Institute, where he was the president and CEO for eight years. And before that, he had a very long career at the World Bank. So, hi, Danny. Thanks very much for joining me today. Oh, hi, Liz. What a pleasure to, to be with you today. So, Danny, I wonder if you could tell me how you came to start working on state capture. So... How did you develop this concept and why was this concept needed at that point in time and in in that point of your work? Uh, Okay, and allow me, bear with me for a few minutes to provide a bit of context and then we'll go more more quickly. But this is my days at the World Bank, mid-1991. I'm finishing giving a presentation in, in Paris, it was, on a book launch tour of a book I was a co-author, basically the World Development Report for that year, 1991, that the bank prepares every year, but that year was on the lessons of many decades of development. But I finished my talk and I have an urgent call from a high official calling from the office of the president of the bank and asking me on the spot if I would care to commit to a new job starting almost immediately. And that would be as the lead economist of a new unit that the president had, of the World Bank had just decided to create. And that department was called Soviet Union Department. After decades of being seen as an imperialist capital tool, Gorbachev had initiated the detent and perestroika and decided that they needed help from the World Bank. So within weeks, I was traveling back and forth to Moscow and I still vividly recall the frigid day of Christmas Day, 
December 25, 1991, witnessing in Red Square before the Kremlin, the lowering of the Soviet flag and the raising of the Russian flag. 15 new independent states emerged from that. Former Soviet Union at the time, our department is renamed former Soviet Union department. And a key new independent state, well known now to everybody, is Ukraine. And they, that's where I head next as the first head of the World Bank in that country, right after their independence, and I stayed there for four years. One of the first tasks was finding an office and a place to live. I was an, a traditional economist until then, but soon I found out that there was no real estate market yet. There was only the Ministry of Real Estate. There were 72 ministries. And the only way of securing real estate was going and having a meeting with a deputy minister. Every ambassador had to go there or head of an organization. I go there and cut the story short. Within 20 minutes of the meeting, a lawyer, his lawyer, comes in and produces a piece of paper that I'm supposed to sign, committing to a $20,000 deposit on his private account in a bank in Vienna. Obviously, I... I made sure with my translator that I did not, nothing was lost in translation, and it wasn't. It was a request for a significant bribe, and I immediately got up and left, and we lodged. Then I, I immediately reported to the higher-ups at the World Bank. We lodged an official complaint, and, and that's another story, what happened with the complaint, but basically we didn't get any any private residence for a very, very long time. For six months, we had to stay in a hotel, but they had to give us an office space because of the diplomatic status and, and, and so on. But basically, I realized during my first week there that traditional economic tools and approaches on their own were not going to take us very far. It was, there was much more than economics. So these governance issues came to the fore. But I was still wedded to the power of facts, data, empirics. So with the nudging of a young reformist minister of the economy that was coming in into the new government, who was also concerned about corruption, we organized a set of peri periodic surveys of firms in Ukraine and in Russia at first to gauge the climate for business and the issue of corruption. I even got out of that an initial bribe fee list for different services and and permits and so on. And not surprisingly, found all kinds of fees for administrative corruption, such as obtaining a phone line. But the prevalence and extent of established payoffs across the spectrum, in Russia being about twice and in Ukraine, but both high, such as around trade, around financial sector, regulations in general, suggested suggested to me a much more systemic type of problem. The deputy minister request for a bribe was simply not an isolated incident. So we started gathering more data. We organized roundtables with policymakers, parliamentarians, and journalists. And when the chief legal vice president of the World Bank found out I was doing all that, I got scolded, officially so, because the World Bank at the time, by charter, could not work on the what was called at the bank officially in documents the C word C dot 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 standing for corruption. So I was supposed to deal, and I was supposed to deal only with the Ministry of Finance and not with all the other stakeholders. My line of defense 
and I survived, but was that the government officials and other stakeholders had requested this, so I survived. But all these changed not long after the World Bank, because a new president came to the bank, Jim Wolfenson, and he empowered us enormously working on corruption and with civil society and parliamentarians. By then, the Russians and the Ukraine and others were on a troubling path towards oligarchic corruption were increasingly powerful members of the private elite, were exerting such influence on weak governments, and uh, that were transi transitioning to democracy, which was the case with many of these countries. So it was during this transitional economy context that I met also a great, uh, I met a great scholar on Russia, working at the European Bank for Concerned Development, EBRD, Joel Hellman, time I was working there, uh, and we both shared the dissatisfaction with the anti-corruption field, which was so focused on administrative or bureaucratic forms of corruption, paying a little bit of lip service to vague notions of so-called high-level corruption. We were concerned about this phenomenon of, of capture of the state, where powerful corporates and firms did not just try to navigate or get around the existing rules of the game, but instead they shaped the rules of the game. So we put together a major server of firms um, with the support of the chief economists of the ABRD and also I got support of the bank for all the former Soviet and Central European economies. You may probably heard about the, the so-called BEEPS survey that still survives and tried to codify with granularity this shaping of legislation of presidential decrees and other such forms of capture. Interestingly, from the early days, we found enormous variation in the extent of state capture across the country. Uh, already by the late 90s, very high level of state capture in Russia, Azerbaijan, Ukraine, while very low in the Baltics, and also, uh, poignantly, in Hungary at the time. So in a nutshell, at the time we found that there was a compelling case to view the governance challenges of transitional economies, such as in the former Soviet Union, via a, a fresh state capture lens, very different than this administrative, traditional administrative corruption. Uh, but later on, we and others have found it useful, as you also well know and have done it, with adaptations and evolutions in other contexts and, uh, and so on. Thanks, Danny. I think um, that's, a, that's a great introduction to how this all came about and some, some great colour there to um, taking us back to the early 90s in the former Soviet Union. One of the distinctions you made there is between administrative corruption and state capture. I like the way you, you summed it up as um, administrative corruption is the getting around the rules and state capture is actually shaping them. And I think that for me, so I was then a PhD student in the early 2000s and came across your work on this. And I found that distinction really useful. And it's something that I've then sort of carried on using and built on um, later on. But you mentioned that this practice and this concept has taken on new forms. And I think one of the biggest uses of it recently has been in South Africa, actually. Of course, we've even had a whole state capture um, commission. We, we've had this uh, extensive relationship between Jacob Zuma and the Guptas characterized as state capture. And I believe you even testified at that Zondo commission. So is that the same phenomenon, do you think? Um, and if not, then how is it different? That's a very 
crucial, great question, and so much in that evolution. So please interview uh, on this and help me out. But uh, indeed, for years, the discourse in South Africa has been around the notion of state capture. They, they, they captured that notion and they adopted, adopted it instead, very explicitly, instead of the one of corruption, traditionally so. And the, the answer to your question is, is not totally satisfactory because it will be yes and no. Because it, in the yes side, it, it does retain the core of the capture notion in, in your original work. We did, and then others did, which we relied on referring to the shaping of the rules of the game for the benefit of, of a particular economic political elite and not merely abusing existing rules. And those rules the abuser would take as a given in, in traditional notions of corruption, as we discussed. And it was applied also. That's a, another similarity that it's often missed to the post-Soviet countries, to a country, South Africa, which was also in transition, uh, even with some differences from those post-Soviet countries. But uh, but when we first developed the concept, it was for uh, for countries in, in transition, transition to, to democracy and with all kinds of institutional fragilities. At the same time, let's be clear, the use in South Africa reflects some important evolutions in the use and in the approach to state capture of which you have been a big part part of. At, at the time we worked on Russia and Ukraine, we wanted a complete counter to the prevailing notion at the time in the corruption field that the hapless, well-intended company was always extorted by the all-powerful government officials, politicians, which, and all that was also at the core of the traditional definition of corruption. So at the time, we tried to turn the table on its head and suggested that the corporates were kind of almighty, as many oligarchs actually were, while the government official or politician was the weak actor, reversing the conventional way of viewing the power asymmetry. In practice, worldwide and over time, it was clear that there was a full spectrum in terms of these power dynamics between the private and the public sector actors. So while the notion of high-level government officials or politicians having a monopoly on policy, while corporates were passive bystanders, was still challenged by the notion of state capture over time, I think you, you may agree with that, the evolution in the notion allowed for a larger role for politicians. And you have contributed enormously to that. In simple words and in practice, often what's at play is a collusion between the economic and the political elite. And that still can fundamentally alter those rules of the game. All this is reflected in the case of South Africa, where the Guptas and the Zumas, each with their own enormous power to influence economic finance on one side and politically respectively, played a colluding role there. Now, the other evolution which South Africa illustrates, in my view, refers to the sharp and simple original distinction we made between shaping the rules of the game, state capture, versus corruption, bribery, mostly while implementing such rules of the game, which we called original administrative corruption. Uh, there, 
let me make one, one point, which I think is relevant today, and your work on that too. In practice, there's been a need for evolution and clarification of the notion of implementation of the rules of the game. So, for instance, if an individual is engaged in bribery, in a very, very particular transaction, which illegally results in getting around a pre-existing rule or you get awarded one particular contract, that is not captured. That is still traditional administrative or bureaucratic corruption. But when the whole implementation or the implementation institutional machinery is reshaped to benefit private and political interests, when the rules of the implementation game are reshaped and that's subject to capture, we are still talking uh, about state capture. In this case, with state capture, which impinges on the whole implementation mechanism. In other words, systemic implementation capture is not only encompassed by, by the reality now, um, and I think it, it's you should be encouraged given the circumstances. So just to, to finish, some obvious examples come into mind, which are relevant in South Africa. The whole procurement system and the public expenditure system, both, both were reshaped to serve particular elites was not transactional. And in this context, also worth noting the capture of key state enterprises, which is another key manifestation of, of capture. And in this, in this sense, it's the reverse from Russia, where it was the privatization mechanism moving away from state enterprises, which was subject to capture. So it, it varies depending on the, on the second. So to conclude on South Africa, in a sense, South Africa public sector the public sector has been captured and the institutional manifestations abound. I mentioned some examples, but the, the state loans in very favorable below market terms to the Guptas and others tax benefit to companies managed by them, the diversion of state resources and of state-owned enterprises and, and, and so on. At the same time, for the benefit of politicians, there was a reframing of the state institutions for the political class to consolidate itself and perpetuate itself in power. So in that sense, it's a much, it's a much more complex and colluding picture than the early depiction that we made of the complete oligarchic power over, over the state in the Russians and the Ukraine, in the Yeltsin. Yeah, and you mentioned that in that so in that early phase when you were looking at the former Soviet Union and, and Central and Eastern Europe in the early years, um, one of the countries that looked really clean was Hungary. And you know, similarly for me, so I was doing my PhD comparing privatization in Croatia and Hungary. Uh -huh. And and essentially the story in Croatia was not dissimilar to a Russian kind of oligarchs story. Um, you know, Tudjman had essentially made it easy for cronies um, to buy assets pretty cheaply. Um, they called them tycoons rather than oligarchs in Croatia, but it was a similar kind of story. Whereas in Hungary, you know, there was corruption in the privatization process, but it had often been much more through management buyouts. And in general, Hungary was seen as a real front runner of transition. It was seen as having solid democracy. It had lots of changes of power, um, seemed to have a really sound constitution. And, and it was, I think, once Orban came to power in 2010 and quite violently changed the rules of the game, 
it was quite difficult to get people to to see that uh, because it had this good reputation. Um, but I wonder, you know, just sort of if I could ask you to reflect on that whole period. So you know, we do now have a lot of people talking about Hungary as an example of state capture, Hungary under Orban since 2010. But also in the Balkans, we have a number of examples. Um, Dusan Pavlovich's work on um, on Serbia and other countries in, in the Western Balkans, um, really using this terminology in the concept of state capture. I just wondered if I could ask you to reflect on how you see that path having developed. Was it inevitable, I guess, is my question. Um, or did we do something wrong or um, you, did we sort of miss opportunities to prevent that path? Yeah, I hope you don't expect that I will have the final word on that, but it's, it's great to have an, an exchange. I mean, the first point I would I would make is that at this stage, it's just so important to focus on countries. And I know about your, your, your thesis and great work on, on Croatia and Hungary and, 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 and so on. I mean, this whole notion and process of economies in transition from plant to market, from communism to some variant of democratic capitalism, that, that has been over, should really be seen as having been over well over a decade ago, but with enormous variation. Some transited most of the road like the Baltics. Others got stuck midway and have kind of muddled through, and others never even started, like we are not speaking about Turkmenistan, right? And others have reversed course in very important respects. And poignantly, we have just referred to that and you, Russia and Hungary, for, for instance. But there have been so many different uh, pathways, and therefore uh, we are talking about enormous cross-country var- variation, which suggests that there is no deterministic or in- inevitable path, uh, and suggests that focusing on specific countries is in- in- important. And related to the discussion we had before, so there, are, if we can look at some countries in that <coughs> region where much of the power back then resided where, with the corporates at first and was state capture in, in the way that we, we view it. And it's still pretty much the case, at least Ukraine, for instance, until before the war started now, it's, 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 it's such a critical different reality. But uh, it's, it's one case, Georgia, not that dissimilar, even though politicians were clearly not devoid of power themselves. But then there there is the other extreme where the political leaders have become increasingly autocratic. So you may, you may have some of these countries where you are absolutely right in saying that the, the, uh, the power dynamics have changed and the politicians have become more powerful, but it can, that can still have happened within quasi-democratic type of evolutions, a la Ukraine and Georgia, for instance versus a completely different reality of what has happened in terms of reversals in the age, in the Russia, in the Hungaries, right? Where these autocratic leaders have amassed enormous economic and political power themselves. So one can make the case, I believe, that the economic oligarch in chief in Russia is putting himself 
So we, we should challenge the notion that always oligarchs need to be outside of government or, or politics. It's, they, they become, in some sense, kleptocaptors. Donald Trump is different, but it's another example. While at the same time, the cronies, his oligarchic group, including from the, from the KGB and so on, are, are betting him. So they still play a role uh, externally. And Orban is, is not the same, right? And you would know much better than the Hungarian re- reality. But in terms of the <coughs> slide away from democratic tendency and the amassing of the political power, and with that, the state capture that comes from that is in that sense. But... I think, I mean, Orban is really interesting and he looks in not only at Russia, but he, he respects more China, but that's another, another di- discussion. So I think here it, it's important to make a distinction for the notion of state capture to stay relevant. And this is, this is a, a caveat that I think it's really important nowadays because of the broadening of the concept to encompass the political dimension of of capture, and that uh, and that is that there is always a financial, venal, and and klepto interest. I think we we would slide into a problem with Karl Popper's falsifiability test, where we could not define what is in the empty set of state capture and say what is not and what is not state capture if we say that the regime of North Korea was one of of state capture as opposed to being a complete ultimate autocracy. But since it's difficult to make the case that it's all driven or it's very largely driven by venal financial interests and with the abetting of corporate interests. That's a completely different type of reality, which I would not encompass. So somewhere we need to draw the line. And so therefore, I still think that the, the corporate and venal interest is very much still alive and should be part of the definition and the notion of, of state capture. But that's obviously incredibly present in the Putins of this world, who arguably is a most wealthy person on earth. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, actually, how um, you sort of drawn a bit of a distinction there between a kind of ideological sort of autocracy versus a, an autocracy that's essentially there to st- to serve stealing. And I, I agree on that. Um, but I think also what we see is often those leaders who are engaged in state capture, essentially for venal purposes, dressing it up with a lot of ideology because that's useful politically to kind of bring the population along when you're when you're doing that stealing. Also interested that you brought up Trump because so I've used the concept to to question whether the UK is sliding into state capture. But I've had pushback from some people on that saying, oh hang on if you're using it for those mature democracies as well, then um, you do risk that kind of, oh, you're, you're using it for everything. Um, you know, butterfly collectors see butterflies everywhere is the, um, the cute little phrase for that. What, and what do you say to that? Is this a concept that can be used for the US and the UK? My view is that it's perhaps even more relevant at the at the very early stage of 
of development, I think the traditional notions of corruption and a lot of administrative and other corruption still uh, are still very, very germane and very relevant. And, and there are quite a few countries in Africa, they, it would be difficult to, to indicate and suggest that they're fully captured. South Africa is, is a particular case and it's much more sophisticated economy and, and institutional than others, but it's at a certain level of institutional sophistication that you can start capturing the institutions and the rules of the game and so on, as opposed to just coarsely benefiting from traditional corruption. And the other very important element, which we have not discussed, is, is that, that for me, crucially, distinctively, in terms of state capture versus traditional notion of corruption, is the legal aspect. But and particularly because we're talking about shaping the rules of the game. So the captors basically can and have adapted and shaped the laws to benefit themselves. And what they are doing could be totally unethical and the worst type of governance, but still legal. And they, there are some emblematic decisions by the, the, the Supreme Court some years ago in the United States that basically altered the definition of corruption to, to make, to make it incredibly difficult to be able to prove that there was a corrupt act that, uh, that basically shows the extent to which the influencing and the lobbying and altering the laws. So what's in the United States, it's legal will be totally legal at another time and in many other countries. And that the same applies in other places. So the legal aspect is part of the subtle evolution of misgovernance to, to more legal forms of corruption, which, as you know, we have written about it. And that's very important aspect of state capture, which is not necessarily encompassed in the traditional forms of administrative and bureaucratic corruption. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really difficult then to um, make those kinds of comparisons. The, the ground is sliding beneath you. One of the big areas of your work has been around the oil industry and governance of natural resources. How does state capture come in there? And, and what are the implications of state capture where you've got resource-rich countries? Well, if there was some doubt or lack of clarity until six months ago, I think. And now the whole world is painfully aware of that because the Putin war and Russia is emblematic, in my view, of the global damage that can take place when you have an oil-rich kleptocaptor. Oil and gas has fueled, basically, his kleptocapture and fulfills Venal kleptomania as, as well as the war machinery. Arguably, as we said, the richest man in the world. His war, his energy policies, the utter disregard for climate change, the collusion with other autocrats in other countries. We have just seen it in a number of very important global meetings that have taken place. It's a huge manifestation of both the global consequences of state capture in general, but also in particular, it is a major obstacle to the energy transition and addressing climate change, which as we all know now, we are, we are at a particular conundrum because of 
of this war and the implications of that for Europe in particular, but not only, uh, also for the rest of the world. But here again, we should not, and we cannot, in my view, look at the autocrat or the kleptocaptor alone and disregard the very important company side. That's where we started the work. And, that, and by that, I don't just mean the state-owned enterprises, the national oil companies in the in the Nigerias and in the in the Russias or and in the Venezuelas of this world, but also the international oil and gas giants. Witness, for instance, as an example, the role that the oil giants such as Total still play today, today in Myanmar and in Russia. They have not left or the role of Exxon and the Rex Tillerson that, that he was playing before he was appointed Secretary of State by Trump as the CEO of Exxon in colluding with Putin in, in Russia at all levels. And that was only a few years ago. But then there is a whole area of huge and due influence of lobbying and political finance, much more generally, by the oil sector in slowing down environmental and climate change regulations, in securing enormous explicit and implicit subsidies. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, probably no IMF has estimates in the trillions as to the extent of subsidies in, in, in these, including tax breaks enormously, and that's Obviously, especially for an economist, it's, 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 it's an elephant in the room. And further, they send the influence over emerging economies that these big oil companies have regarding securing investments under very favorable terms. And all this, therefore, provides a bias towards investing in fossil fuels, which may be highly financial profitable profitable for privates, for the elites on both sides, but obviously not for society at large. So this slow, slows down uh, progress enormously in, in a nutshell. So you've talked about how, um, how complex a concept state capture is, and also about how it can have these really serious consequences in terms of I always think it sort of it swerves us off course, and as you say, it leads to these biases in terms of what what public policy works on and how economies developed. Now, in all of your career at the World Bank and um, at NRGI, you've always been very keen on collecting the data and developing measurements and indices um, of these concepts. And I think at the moment you're working on something here around uh, state capture index. Could you tell us a bit more about that and how on earth you're doing it with such a complex concept, but also why you think that's an important thing to do? Yeah, well, remember Lord, Lord Kelvin said what well, centuries ago, what cannot be measured, cannot be controlled, you cannot do much about it. So I'm a big believer on on backing the work with empirical work, helping with empirical analysis. So I think it's incredibly important. I think a significant progress has been made in the field of anti-corruption in many places of the world, and contributions by you and many of your colleagues and others in the field have benefited enormously from, 
from indices and data in the field, including Transparency International. None of them is perfect, but there's been quite a bit and an enormous proliferation of some measures of corruption in one form or another, but not so for state capture. And here we are, you and me and a few others that believe this is an incredibly important concept. At the same time, you just mentioned, and rightly so, it's really hard because the ground is constantly shifting and we're traversing between the legal and the illegal and, and between shaping and institutions and shaping the, the implementation and so on. So, so it, it's very tough. What we did in the early days with Joel Hellman and then it was continued through the BEEP survey was one angle, is the angle of asking firms basically for their feedback on the undue influencing and purchase of, of uh, presidential decrees and of legislation and regulation and, and so on. So that gave one kind of area, but uh, that's, yeah, that requires a lot of also resources and expensive, and it was for the set of countries for that part of the world. There's been also some very good and serious work by some Russian academics, some people at the World Bank working on Tunisia and, and so on, which are, is country specific. And at, at, for one country, one can find kind of common variables across different provinces and states and so on. And that allows to that some of that work also has been around political connections that has, have been measured for firms, right, regarding political connections with politicians and trying to see whether and how much they benefit, which is goes in that direction. It's very interesting. But not, none of that provides a global indicator with problematic and so on, but having none at all, I think it's we're worse off. So I've been uh, working on, on that, uh, trying to basically look at a, at a broad measure that could be comparable across time and across space for the world, about 180 countries, and trying to capture by looking at the at indicators and especially political uh, databases like VDEM and, and a few others, uh, and including also our governance indicators, trying to have various elements. One, seeing what's the extent of capture of the law law and including the judiciary and so on, which I know you are focused on your research. Another com important component is the capture of the policy making and uh, of the polity, the access to to the politicians and the policy making, which is different from the, the legal aspect. And then the other component that I put in that to create this kind of initial in index is the ecosystem for capture, if it's present or not, voice and accountability, freedom basically of association of the press, does it exist or not, then some broad measure of the extent to which the uh, rule of law and corruption exists in general. And importantly, and I think that has been also one of your focus, is the extent of wealth inequality, in a, in a sense as a proxy for, for political inequality, which is more fundamental and comes first before the wealth inequality, although they interact. Let me just suggest very quickly and related to our previous discussion that the initial results, and I'm still writing it up and checking, but the initial results suggest 
uh, not surprisingly to, to you and some of us and so on, such diverging paths over time between Hungary and Russia deteriorating and having so much more state capture over the past 20 years versus the Ukraine and Georgia. Georgia very steeply uh, improving and Ukraine muddling through at first, but in, in more recent times, pre-war, some improvement. And that doesn't only play out these interesting variations over time and across countries in, in this part of the world that you're so interested in, but in the Americas, let me just suggest an emblematic comparative pair. And that's the United States versus Uruguay. And the first seeing a very deep decline, decline towards increasing state capture over the, the past decades versus the unsung success, which we don't focus enough. And I think it's worth looking at it more of countries like Uruguay. So there are also countries that show that that something can be done about about. Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison too, because of that point on inequality, because I think I'm right in saying that Uruguay is quite equal um, as a society. And in the US, you've seen very increasing inequality. Am I right on that? Or Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Totally. So that it does suggest that there's something around this relationship between state capture and inequality. I think you can see it being quite a circular relationship. But Yeah, but inter- let me point out that in the case of the US, Basically, all components and also sub-indicators point over the, the past uh, decade plus in the wrong direction. So it's not all driven by the yeah. inequality issue. I mean, and, and as you say, they interact and the causalities go in different directions. But, but we are talking there about a, a systemic decline in that. Yeah. Danny, it's been great talking to you about state capture. The tradition on kickback is that we also ask people what would be their advice for young scholars in the field looking at corruption and anti-corruption. What do you think are the interesting or important areas to work on? Well, if, if that has been the tradition, I'm sure you have gotten so many great ideas already, but because probably there has not been such focus other than from you on state capture, maybe I'll just uh, suggest three or four areas within the topic we just discussed, which is state capture as opposed to corruption more generally. But one one very interesting question I have, and we can have hypotheses, and I think implicitly you, you hinted at that too, is about this evolution of state capture. So with, we depicted it, and we believe it was like that, very corporate intensive in terms of the, the power asymmetry in the early days. And that has changed fundamentally in the Russias of this world and, and, and the Hungarians and so on. So the question is, to what extent that may have resulted in part in kleptocapture, as opposed to countries on the Baltics that did have a transition and a more orderly and successful transition to a market economy. And as a result, also the inequality issues very different and did not then result in the forces that lead to, to more um, autocratic type of capture. So that's one question whether 
whether it is evolution over time of the term is is not just a notional issue, but the, there is a causality there over time, because obviously if a country in transition is not traversing to, to a fair type of a market-friendly type of place, but uh, but uh, relatively well distributed and so on, it can lead to this type of reverses. Uh, the second area is about the costs. So a lot is, is written in intensive text, but with the little data about the, the consequences of state capture, but not about the cost. We claim a priori because this is about shaping the rules of the game, that it should be a problem which is orders of magnitude bigger than uh, than the traditional transactional type of corruption. But the homework has not been done. So maybe as a, in terms of case studies and so on, using so much data from the Lava Jatos uh, in Brazil, the Petrobras Odebrecht scandal and so on. A third area which we just touch upon is probing further on the legal versus illegal forms of corruption that are part of state capture because a lot happens legally. And one obviously, obvious area is relates to political finance. And then they're in constructively thinking about what to do about it. What kind of innovations that are more focused on the state capture challenge, as opposed to a more generic or traditional corruption challenge, makes sense. What works and what what doesn't in on political finance reform is one obvious area, and I know some people are working on that. But then also in terms of legal slash economic incentives, you you know while well, the case of Brazil, Lava Jato, how how did they unearth the enormity? of damning information about Odebrecht and, and the mechanism, how the whole state capture worked. It was done through the innovation the Brazilians had, US had it, but the rest of Latin America didn't have it at the time, which is plea bargaining, right? And having somebody focus on particular legal, such legal innovations and whether it has worked or it doesn't. The other is obviously different approaches to whistleblowers. Um, I think insufficient attention has been paid whether whistleblowers, uh, not only the, the regular legal protections, but with financial rewards, which is the case in the US. Is that more effective or or not? So those are some some areas. Let me just put one pet issue that I have at the end as having worked on policy issues so much. Is the assessment of different type of approaches to policy reform. So on the one extreme, we always have the one, so let's focus because of political capital on one and only one important reform. As we all know that there are problems with that because there are, as you have called them, also displacement effect and, and it's not complemented in other areas. It may not have the desired impact. At the same time, the old World Bank type of approach would we label it as a Christmas list tree of a demanding expecting countries to implement 220 different reforms is totally unfeasible, right? And we call it comprehensive. So 
how does one prioritize for each country? Because it requires tailoring to a country. What would be the package of three, four, or five, a set of complementary from whose interaction between them may make the difference without falling into either extreme or just believing that one single one would be the silver bullet, but also the the infeasible, totally comprehensive approach that I have not seen being able to work anywhere. Wow, these are great questions. Um, I particularly like that last one, but they're all great questions. And, and a few decades worth of work, I think, probably an answer to them. Sorry. Danny, thanks so much. We're out of time, but that was a brilliant conversation. Um, I look forward to seeing your um, next work around this measurement of state capture issue. That sounds really exciting. And um, look forward to keeping in touch on this issue. The same here. And uh, yeah, and I, I look forward to continue reading your great research and writings on on many of these issues we just discussed. Maybe I was summarizing wrongly, but uh, it was a lot of your work. So congratulations in keeping the flame alive.